Hello, I'm Danny Aiken, president of Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary. We want to thank you for listening to this chapel message. Our mission at Southeastern is to seek to glorify the Lord Jesus Christ by equipping students to serve the church and fulfill the Great Commission. We hope that you enjoy this chapel message and that you will visit our website. It's www.sebts.edu. There you can learn more about our school and what the Lord is doing here. We hope you enjoy the message. Thank you for being a part of what we're doing here. one of the most important books in the history of the church as it was a catalyst for the great reformation under the influence of Martin Luther uh, in particular, but also John Calvin, Ehrlich Zwingli, John Knox. So if you would take your Bible and turn to the book of Galatians, and I'm going to read with you a text that we will look at quickly this evening, chapter 1, verses 1 through 10, but then also I'm going to look at a couple of verses in chapter 4 that uh, fit very much the uh, season of the year uh, as Paul reflects upon the giving of God's Son in the Lord Jesus Christ coming to earth. But Galatians 1, 1 through 10, in many ways, captures the uh, major thrust of what this book uh, is all about. And so Paul, in his introduction, simply writes, Paul, an apostle, not from men, nor through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father, who raised him from the dead, and all the brethren who are with me to the churches of Galatia. Grace to you and peace from God the Father and our Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins, that he might deliver us from this present evil age according to the will of our God and Father, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. And then, something quite remarkable. This is the only time in any of Paul's letters that he does not have a word of praise uh, or commendation for a particular church, or in this case, a particular group of churches, but rather launches right in with his uh, concern, and in this instance, uh, with a word of uh, discipline and chastisement. I marvel, verse 6, that you are turning away so soon from him who called you in the grace of Christ to a different gospel, which is not another. But there are some who trouble you and want to pervert the gospel of Christ. But... Even if we or an angel from heaven preach any other gospel to you than what we have preached to you, let him be, and the Greek phrase is anathema. Here in the New King James, let him be accursed. It would not be too strong to say, let him be damned. And as we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone preaches any other gospel to you than what you have received, let him be accursed. Let him be anathema. For do I now persuade men or God, or do I seek to please men? For if I still pleased men, I would not be a bondservant of Christ. And there Paul lays the foundation for his defense of the gospel. Then in chapter 4, in verse 4, 5, and 6, you have three of the most precious, I believe, verses in all the Bible that talk about the coming of our Lord and the blessing of adoption that is ours through faith in Christ. But when the fullness, you like, when it was exactly the right time, when the fullness of the time had come, God sent forth his son, there is the affirmation of his deity, born of a woman, born under the law, there is an affirmation of his humanity. And very interestingly, uh, some liberal scholars have often argued that Paul has no knowledge or awareness of anything along the lines of a doctrine of the virgin birth. But his phrase here, born of a woman, 
uh, is a very unusual phrase. What you would not normally expect is they always, uh, in the uh, ancient uh, Hebrew culture, uh, connected one's birth up with the father. And yet here, uh, born of a woman, sounds very much like Genesis 3.15, where it is the seed of a woman that will crush the head of the serpent. So I personally think there's at least a uh, subtle implication of the virgin birth right here. And so again, God sent forth in the fullness of time his son, born of a woman, born under the law. Why? To redeem those who are under the law, that we might receive the adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent forth the spirit of his son into your hearts, crying out, Abba, Father. Therefore, you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir of God through Christ. And do not miss the Trinitarian connection there in verse 6, where you see he has sent forth the spirit of his son into your hearts, crying out, Abba, Father. And so there is a very beautiful uh, Trinitarian affirmation in a single verse there in Galatians chapter 4 and verse 6. Well, with that as a good reading of the text, look with me at your notes this evening. First of all, Galatians, we could summarize it as the gospel uh, that sets us free, sets us free from sin, sets us free from Satan, and yes, even sets us free from ourselves in the context of our sinful nature. So the theme, spiritual freedom through the gospel, the author, the Apostle Paul, no one contests that. Uh, the destination and recipients is the churches in South Galatia. And if you were looking at a map, and I'll make a reference to this in a moment, you will see that it refers to a lower uh, series of cities that Paul had evangelized on his first missionary journey. Uh, the date of writing, I think, circa means approximately uh, A.D. 48 or 49. If this is correct, then this would be Paul's first epistle. Uh, the other close candidate is First and Second Thessalonians that were dated, uh, that are dated by most scholars, 50 to 52. And so, if you date Galatians in the mid 50s or in the early 50s, you then usually put First and Second Thessalonians before it. I believe, though following the South Galatian theory and that Paul wrote this not too long after his first missionary journey, this is indeed the first letter that Paul penned. Place of writing is uncertain. We do not know. Purpose in writing, and actually need to mark out the number five there. There are just four of them. One, to rebuke the Galatians for forsaking the gospel. Secondly, to explain just what the gospel, the good news is. Thirdly, to present the doctrine of justification by faith, and along with the book of Romans, these two books set it forth more clearly than any others in the Bible. And then fourthly, to combat the false teachings of the Judaizers, uh, Jewish persons who had embraced Christ but had not fully embraced the true Christ and the true gospel, who were leading the Galatians into a theological error with a false gospel. Basically, they were advocating a Jesus Plus program. Uh, you do need Jesus plus good works. You need Jesus plus obedience uh, to the Mosaic law. And Paul condemns this as a false gospel. In fact, he says it is not a gospel at all. So there's a good one-page summary. If you look on page two, as has been my custom, I provided again for you a structural chart. To let you see the overarching flow of the book, this book is very similar to Paul's classic way of dividing his book into two parts. First of all, doctrine. Second part, deed. Or if you like, first part, how we should believe. Second part, how we should live. The one difference is Paul begins really with an extended personal 
uh, almost autobiographical approach in the first two chapters. Then comes the doctrinal argument in the two middle chapters. And then comes the practical or how we should live instruction in the last two chapters. So it's personal, doctrinal, and practical, two chapters each of the six chapters. And here, as to the occasion, it again expands it out a bit. It's worth reading together. Galatians is a letter filled with passion and zeal. Paul had heard that the Galatian Christians were falling away from the true gospel of grace and turning to a legalistic works approach to salvation. He desired to turn them back to the freedom of salvation by faith alone. In doing so, he argued that not only is the sinner saved by grace, but the saved sinner also lives by grace. We're saved by grace and we live by grace. Thus, grace is the way to life. And grace is the way of life. And so at the bottom of the page, a very simple purpose statement. Paul wrote to the Galatians to assert the essential doctrine of justification by faith in Jesus Christ and to refute false teachers who are advocating a faith plus works doctrine of salvation. And again, he's going to argue that from his own personal experience and ministry, give a very strong doctrinal argument, grounding it in the Old Testament example of Abraham, and then saying in chapters 5 and 6, all right, here's the natural outworking. As I said a moment ago, his argument is this, not only are you saved by grace, but also you are to live the Christian life by grace as well. It is all by grace from beginning to end. All right. With that, then turn to page three and let's walk through the background material uh, quickly. First of all, Paul is the author of the letter. This fact is not contested even by liberal scholars. His conversion took place in Acts chapter nine and his missionary activity is recorded in Acts 13 through Acts 28. Uh, and he is the author of 13 of our New Testament epistles. And as I mentioned earlier, Galatians may have been Paul's first letter. It was written to those churches that he evangelized on his first missionary journey in Acts chapter 13, verse 1, through chapter 14 and verse 28. And so you think in mind of Lystra, Derby, Iconium, those cities in southern Galatia. And that is where Paul had evangelized on his first missionary tour. And, of course, if you remember, uh, he took along with him on that journey uh, the son of encouragement, a man by the name of Barnabas. All right. Why is this letter important? Well, I give you six reasons. Number one, it sets forth the apostolic authority of Paul. The only other letter that even comes close to defending Pauline apostleship is 2 Corinthians, which we looked at last week. And again, both in 2 Corinthians and Galatians, Paul has to do this because he is being attacked by false teachers, Judaizers, who are questioning the authenticity and the genuineness of his apostleship. Secondly, it presents with crystal clear clarity the doctrine of justification by faith alone. Paul demonstrates that the way of salvation for a sinner is by grace through faith, and I would underline this almost in my notes, plus nothing. Salvation, Paul argues, has been going on before there was any law of Moses. Example, Abraham. And thus the way of salvation was then as it is now and always will be through faith alone apart from any law, works, doctrine. Now, let's make sure we understand. How has God always saved people? Answer. He has always saved people by grace through faith. That's how he saved people in the Old Testament. 
That's how he saves people in the New Testament. Now, what is the basis of that salvation? The answer, the perfect atoning work of Jesus Christ. Now, it is the case. Old Testament believers looked forward to that. You and I look back to that. It is the case, again, that we are more fortunate than they. For we have a more full and complete understanding of exactly how salvation was accomplished. But do not misunderstand. In the Old Testament, they were not saved by obeying the law. They were not saved by their good works. They were saved by grace through faith in the atoning work of Christ, which they looked forward to imperfectly, no doubt. But still, they looked forward to the coming of a deliverer who in some way would be God's salvation for not only the nation, but as we also learn from the Psalms and Isaiah and other books of the Old Testament, even for the nations as well. And so here Paul clarifies God has always saved people the same way, by grace, through faith. All right, number three, it defends Christian liberty. Paul's defense of justification is the foundation of which Paul builds his structure of what it means to be free in Christ. Thus, Galatians is a declaration of freedom from religious externalism and personal frustration in one's spiritual life. Whether it is in the first century or the 21st century, if you are enslaved to legalism, you are destined to be frustrated in your Christian life. Why? Because in your own power, in your own strength, by obeying a bunch of rules and regulations, number one, you can never please God, and number two, you can never even live up to that standard, no matter how low you may set it. And therefore, you are destined to be frustrated if you somehow think, well, I'm saved by grace through faith, But I am pleasing to God by the doing of good works. Now, don't misunderstand me. Good works are the natural outflow of a life that has been genuinely born again by the power of God. It is something that you do, not because you have to, but because you want to. You are indeed set free to do what you ought for the first time in your experience. And because of the indwelling power of the Holy Spirit, you're enabled to obey this law of Christ that is now internalized joyfully, gladly, willingly, without any type of overt external constraints or pressures or obligations. And again, sometimes we as Baptists, are just as bad with our little rules and regulations that bring us into bondage as any Roman Catholic or, for that matter, any Jew. And so Paul is trying to help us understand the freedom that we have in Christ. In fact, if I could just summarize it, it's kind of back to what we did when we walked through the Corinthian principles out of 1 Corinthians. Paul just basically says, love God and do as you please, to quote Augustine, by the way. Love God and do... As you please. Or to say it another way, let your love for Christ and one another be the regulating principle in your liberty. Let your love for Christ and one another be the regulating principle of your liberty. And, of course, Paul is going to connect that with this wonderful thing called the fruit of the Spirit in Galatians 5, 22 and 23. And so Paul gives a completely, radically new way of understanding what the spiritual life indeed ought to be. 
Then number four, it gives us a good picture of the church in its early incipient stage, the apostolic age. It's, it's very biographical and allusions. It gives references to conflicts and struggles of the apostolic period. In fact, you cannot help but read chapter 2, verse 11 and following and not laugh a little bit. When uh, Paul says, you know, oh, Peter came down to visit you all. Y'all remember that? And they were like, yeah. And uh, while Paul came down and saw that y'all were having a big barbecue, and because Paul understood how free we are in Christ, while Paul sat down and did something he'd never done before, had him a big pork sandwich. By the way, he didn't put that nasty uh, vinegar-based barbecue stuff in it like some of you weird North Carolinians. It was, it was tomato-based barbecue. And Paul feasted on that stuff, and Peter feasted on that stuff, and, man, Peter did not think it could get any better than this. But then here come the Judaizers showing up. And, oh, Peter, who can be really bold sometimes, can be a cowarding wimp the very next moment. And here they come in, and next thing you know, they're saying, well, well, where's Peter? Why, he usually sits at the head of the table, and they couldn't find Peter anywhere because he was ashamed and embarrassed and afraid of the Judaizers. And Paul gets ticked. And as Paul says, I confronted him to the face because he was to be condemned. And it is kind of funny. It also helps you understand how serious Paul was about maintaining the purity of the gospel. And so it gives us a very interesting uh, uh, number of biographical incidences about Paul and Peter and some others there throughout the six chapters. Then number five, it affirms the clear difference between Christianity and the religious system. Notice my words there, the religious system of Judaism. And then number six, and I think you'll find this very fascinating. It was a catalyst to the Reformation. No other biblical book played a larger part in the Reformation than did Paul's letter to the Galatians. Martin Luther was so impressed with the letter that he referred to it as his wife. And you see my quote there. The epistle to the Galatians is my epistle. To it I am, as it were, in wedlock. It is my Catherine. And Luther's wife by the name was Katie or Catherine. And so Luther said, just like I am wed to Katie, so I am wed to the book of Galatians. It is that precious. It is that personal. I love it that much. Now, the date and the recipients, again, if you were looking this at this from a critical perspective, this is perhaps the one major issue, uh, and it is a major point of debate. It largely depends on whether Paul is using Galatia in a geographical or a political provincial sense, that is, North Galatia, geographical, South Galatia, political. Now, my argument, and this is not something worth chasing down unless you just want to get into this kind of stuff, the latter view seems to be more probable. Here, the Galatians in view are South Galatians, those persons evangelized by Paul on his first missionary journey, Acts 13 and 14. Paul normally used political divisions when he referred to land areas. Furthermore, the enthusiastic welcome described in Galatians 4.14 fits well with Acts 14.11. And the reference to Barnabas, this seals the deal for me, in Galatians 2, 1, 9, and 13 imply that he was well known to the readers. Well, Barnabas traveled with Paul only on his first missionary journey. Remember, they split before number two over a division, a debate, a disagreement over whether or not John Mark 
ought to go with them. And Paul says, he's not going. And Barnabas says, well, if he doesn't go, I'm not going with you. And fine. So Barnabas and John Mark went one way. And Paul took this second time who? Silas. And though it was a unfortunate division, actually God honored it. And you now have two missionary teams going out. And don't think that, well, Barnabas and John Mark went their way. We never hear about them again in the book of Acts. That's true. But you find Paul at the end of his life in Second Timothy saying, bring John Mark with you. He is profitable to me. And so, obviously, John Mark went on to have a very faithful and, uh, I think, a very fruitful ministry. In fact, he sometimes sat down and wrote a gospel called the Gospel of Mark as well. And so Barnabas went with him only on the first trip which would make it then seem very likely that that is what he has in mind. Therefore, in this light, the date of the letter is probably A.D. 48 or 49. Why, my goodness, we're only 15 years after the actual uh, passion of our Lord, just before the Jerusalem conference in Acts 15. And this would make it uh, Paul's earliest letter. The occasion of the letter. It's clearly stated in Galatians 1, 1 through 10. Judaizers had infiltrated the Galatian churches and had attempted to pervert the gospel by supplanting it with a Judaizing interpretation. The attack of these Judaizers was twofold. First, they discredited and called into question the apostleship of Paul. Second, they preached a substitute gospel, a gospel of faith plus works for salvation. For this reason, Paul begins by defending his apostleship in the first two chapters of the book, contends for the true doctrine of grace and faith in chapters 3 and 4, finally makes practical application in the last two chapters, that of 5 and 6. As I mentioned a moment ago, this is a slight variation of the usual Pauline structure of belief and behavior, creed and conduct, doctrine and deed, but not very much if you think about it. Look at point number five then, the purpose of the letter. We noted this a moment ago. I'll just hit him again to expose the false teachings of the Judaizers who were undermining the faith of the new converts by advocating a work salvation. Two, to defend his apostleship, which was being challenged. Three, to emphasize that salvation is by grace through faith alone, not faith plus law works. And fourthly, to exhort the Galatian Christians to live in the liberty and freedom brought by Christ and also to bring forth the fruit of the Spirit, Galatians 5, 22 and 23. Some distinctive characteristics then, very quickly, I noted five of them for you. One, there are many contrasts in Galatians. For example, law and grace, flesh and spirit, bondage and freedom, slave and son. In fact, if you see the chart on the next page, if you look over a moment at page six, uh, you see contrast in Galatians. And here, uh, I broke them down for you by chapters, or at least by the, the three major sections. For example, in Galatians 1 and 2, lost in sin, saved in Christ. All die physically in sin, all live spiritually in Christ. Another false gospel, the true gospel. One you get at by man's reasoning, the other you get by God's revelation. Chapters 3 and 4, law and grace, works and faith, curse of death, blessing of life, condemnation by works, justification by faith, servants in bondage, sons of freedom, The Old Covenant, symbolized by Hagar. The New Covenant, symbolized by Sarah. Chapters 5 and 6. Are you living in the flesh or walking in the Spirit? Do you do the works of the flesh or do you bear the fruit of the Spirit? Have you fallen from grace? Which does not mean to lose your salvation. 
But it does mean to fall away from God's plan and program of grace. So do you fall from grace and go into works as a means of pleasing God? Or do you stand firm in God's grace? And then are you concerned with the world or self as the object of glorying? Or is the cross of Christ the sole object and uh, a focus of where your glory is going to be seen? So there are many contrasts in the book, all the way from chapter 1 to chapter 6. Secondly, strong statements. Uh, Paul was understandably upset over the destructive work of the false teachers. Twice, as we saw a moment ago in the opening chapter, he says, Let him be accursed. Indeed, one commentator that I read said, Every sentence in Galatians is a thunderbolt. Paul is a fearless fighter and a staunch defender of the true gospel. Number three. There's a clear distinction between faith and faith plus works as the means of salvation. Number four, there's a classic treatment of Christian liberty. And again, one commentator called it the Magna Carta of spiritual emancipation. I believe it was Merrill Tenney, but don't hold me to that. I just remember seeing it. I don't remember where I got it. And then number five, there is not a single word of congratulations or praise to the churches at Galatia. This is unique to Paul's letters. Now, we want to be fair. There were certainly things commendable about the Galatian spiritual lives, we're sure. However, the epistle was written under the strain of urgency over a situation of grave emergency. Paul would be having personal interaction with them later. Then he could inspire them through commendation if they heeded his correction. And so on page uh, 6... The theme, Christian liberty, I alluded to that a moment ago. Page 7, I have given you an outline overall of the book. You can see again how I've broken it down into the three major sections. Chapters 1 and 2, the personal address, grace and the gospel. Chapters 3 and 4, the doctrinal argument, grace and the law. And notice there, I point out that Paul gives a personal, scriptural, logical, historical, sentimental, and allegorical argument for the primacy of grace. And then finally, the practical admonition, grace and the Christian life. Four big observations here. Freedom is to be desired, not bondage. The spirit is to be in control, not the flesh. Others are to be first, not oneself. And God's glory is to be sought not the praise of man. And that really does give us a good overarching view of what the book is about. So having said that, let's look at some details in our one outline study tonight there on Galatians 1, 1 through 10 on page 8, the gospel. No place for condemnation. The gospel, no place for condemnation. You know what, you could even uh, uh, give it this title if you like, the gospel, no place for compromise. No place for compromise. So you stand in the gospel, there's no condemnation. You defend the gospel, there is no place for compromise, all right? So how does Paul argue for the gospel? No place for condemnation, no place for compromise. Well, first of all, and I've set this in a way that we can apply this very readily and easily to ourselves tonight. Number one, when it comes to defending the gospel, establish your authority As a Christian minister, and Paul gives us a pattern here, a pattern that though it's not identical to our experience, it is a pattern that is true for you and for me as well in terms of it providing that pattern. First of all, like Paul, all of us have a 
commission. He begins the letter in verse 1, Paul an apostle. And then Paul adds something unique that, again, you find in nowhere, of his, nowhere else in any of his other letters. Parenthetically, not from men, nor through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead. Paul, an apostle, a sent one, one sent with the authority of his sender. Well, Paul, who sent you? Uh, you know, um, we understand why Peter and James and John and some of the others do what they do. I mean, they spent three years with the Lord. But you, why, uh, to use our modern vernacular, you're a Johnny come lately. In fact, if we don't, um, uh, if we, we think back for a moment, you used to persecute the church. In fact, wasn't it you who was there at the stoning of Stephen? And wasn't it you that uh, was headed up to Damascus with papers to arrest Christians and have them thrown in jail? Why, Paul, I mean, you know, we don't mean to be ugly, but you don't have really much of a track record. And uh, you don't really have any basis for making the argument that you're an apostle. And Paul said, let me just tell you something. Say what you want to. My calling as an apostle did not come from men. In fact, it did not come from any particular man. I don't care who you want to set up there. My authority and my calling did not come from him. And by the way, he is going to do what? Defend that in verses 11 through 24. And it's going to go into some detail about his coming to faith in Christ. In fact, look at verse 12, parallels verse 1. For I received it, what? The gospel. I neither received it from man, nor was I taught it. But it came through the revelation of Jesus Christ. And yes... Verse 13, you've heard of my former conduct in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God beyond measure and tried to destroy it. Paul says, I'm not trying to, 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 to deny anything. I'm not trying to cover up anything. I'm not trying to hide anything. I'm just telling you, you're not going to shut me up. Because my authority does not rest with any council, uh, any ordination committee, any body of uh, elected so-called bishops or ministerial uh, alliance, I have my calling from Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead. That is my commission. By the way, you and I have the same commission. Whatever we do for the cause of Christ comes from God's calling on our life through Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised His Son from the dead. If you, by the way, for those of you that are in seminary, have in your life any motivation for doing what you do other than that, you better go home tonight and question whether you are here for the right reasons. Uh, Far too many people show up at all the seminaries because Daddy wanted them there. Mama wanted them there. The sweet, gray-haired ladies of the church always say, Well, I just believed you're going to grow up to be a preacher. Well, I have no ill will toward the sweet, gray-haired ladies. I love every one of them. But you should not be here because of them, your mama, your daddy, or anybody else. You're here because God, through Christ, called you. And you can, as Spurgeon said, if you can go do something else, then go do something else. You should be doing what you're doing because you could not be happy doing anything else. And Paul would say, I have no choice. I was called to do what I do 
by Jesus Christ himself and God his Father who raised him from the dead. Secondly, Paul never had a Lone Ranger mentality. You see, it's very interesting. Paul basically says, it doesn't really matter what anybody else says. All that matters is what God has called me to do. Yet Paul also understood the value of having companions in ministry. And so in verse 2, he just simply adds, And all the brethren who are with me know I'm writing this letter to the churches of Galatia. In other words, Paul basically would have said this, If I have to stand up against the Galatians solo, I will do it. But Paul, in essence, is saying to the Galatians, There are others who know what's going on there. They're just as concerned as I am. They know I'm writing this letter, and they stand with me. That's very valuable. Uh, It's always nice to have some other people in the foxhole with you, who, by the way, you have confidence will guard your backside without shooting you in the back of the head. Uh, My good mentor, Paige Patterson, used to say, you know, one of the ways, and it really worked quite well, by the way, one of the ways you can know that you have a real friend, you just use this analogy, you think, if I were in a foxhole, and there were 10,000 of the enemy coming up over the hill, and I only had two bullets in my gun. And this other guy was behind me, guarding my backside. Where would I use my first bullet? You see, there's some people in the foxhole with you that really you'd need to turn around and say, you know, my dear brother, my dear sister, I know you love me, and I love you. But to be honest with you, I don't trust you enough to not shoot me in the back of the head. So my first shot is for you. I'll see you in heaven in a few minutes, and then you turn back around and use your other bullet on the other person. I've got a lot of friends that uh, I don't really want guarding my backside in the foxhole. Not necessarily because they're malicious, but in many cases they're spiritually not mature enough to make good, wise, godly decisions. And so I just don't want them guarding my backside. I don't mean any ill will toward them. I just would prefer to have somebody else. And I'll tell you something, folks. When everything is said and done, you won't have a whole lot of people that you would trust guarding your backside in the foxhole. I wish it was not like that, but when push comes to shove, you'd be amazed at how many people, when you turn around, aren't even in the foxhole with you anymore. Paul said, I've got some companions who will stand with me concerning the integrity of the gospel. Then thirdly, Paul says, I have a confession that's non-negotiable. Now, this sounds very much like a traditional Pauline uh, greeting, grace to you and peace. The order, as we've always been taught, is important. First comes grace, then comes peace. Grace to you and peace from, and he again demonstrates that it comes equally from God who is our Father. And, and I love it when he uses the full majestic title, our Lord Jesus Christ. Christ by placing grace and peace on an equal plane as coming from both God the Father and our Lord Jesus Christ, he is clearly implying at least the deity of our Lord. And I furthermore would argue by the title, Lord Jesus Christ. Lord emphasizes deity. Jesus emphasizes his humanity. Christ emphasizes the purpose for which he came. He was God's sent one, anointed one, and so we receive grace and peace equally from God, who is our Father, from our Lord Jesus Christ, and then he wants to expand upon why he is the Lord Jesus Christ, and now segue into the gospel, who gave himself for our sins. He was not forced. He gave himself. The Father sent him. The Father gave him. But he likewise gave himself. There was no conflict or no debate 
between God the Father and God the Son when it came to your and my redemption. The Father did not have to kick the Son out of heaven, screaming and hollering, resisting in coming. They were of one heart and mind, one will in the context of our redemption. In fact, they're of one will in everything. So he gave himself for our sins. That he might deliver us. And here's one of the various pictures you have in Scripture of our salvation. He might deliver us from this present evil age. That is, he might deliver us uh, from the power of Satan, from the domain of Satan. Uh, Gustav Allen, for those of you that know the name, his book Christus Victor, in many senses, uh, is on some truth. Because there is a sense in which there is victory over the devil accomplished through the redeeming work of Christ. So to argue that is all that is accomplished is not enough. But he did deliver us from this present evil age. It was according to the will of God the Father. And because of all this, to him is glory forever and ever. Amen. And so Paul establishes his authority as a minister with a commission, his companions, and a confession. Now, very quickly... He moves immediately to his concern. Express your anxiety over the Christian message. Confront those who desert the gospel. Confront those who distort the gospel. Verse 6, I marvel. Some of you may have a translation that says, I am amazed that you are turning away so soon, so quickly from him who called you in the grace of Christ to a different gospel. Now, those of you that are Greek scholars know that there are two different words in the Greek language for another or different. There's the word alos, which means another of the same kind. And there's the word heteros, which means another of a different kind. Well, Paul says, you are turning in the, you are, you are turning away so soon from him who called you in the grace of Christ to a heteros gospel, a gospel of a different sort altogether. It it is not a true gospel. Uh, It is a false gospel. In fact, as he goes on to say, verse 7, it is not another the same kind. There's only one kind. Grace through faith in the perfect atoning work of Christ, period, end of discussion. And so it is not another gospel, but there are some who trouble you, And they want to, and look at the word he uses here, they want to pervert. They want to distort the gospel of Christ. Now, you might want to mark the fact that the word gospel occurs in verse 6, in verse 7, in verse 8, and also in verse 9. Four times in those four verses in rapid succession. So Paul expresses his anxiety over those who were deserting the gospel, the Galatians, those who were distorting the gospel, The Judaizers. Then number three, Paul says, expose your adversaries concerning the Christian ministry. Deal with those who initiate confusion. Deal with those who invite condemnation. Verse seven, it is not another gospel, but there are some who trouble you and want to pervert the gospel of Christ. You're confused. Uh, You're being deceived. You're now buying into something that I did not preach when I was there before. And so Paul says, let me just cut to the chase. If we, oh no, let's go one up higher, or an angel from heaven preach any other gospel to you than what we have preached to you, let him be damned, accursed, anathema. Paul says, 
If I come back and change my message, I need to be accursed. If an angel shows up, good word there for the Mormons, and preaches another gospel, he needs to be accursed. Anyone who comes and changes the gospel of Christ, let him be accursed. And Paul is almost as if he says, and if you don't hear me the first time, I'll say it again. As we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone preaches any other gospel to you than what you have received, let him be anathema, let him be condemned. And Paul just says there's really no way to kind of spin this. There's really no way to sugarcoat this. We just have to put this on the table and let the chips fall where they may. And then Paul says, you know, here's the bottom line. Who are you trying to please? What really matters to you more than anything else? Verse 10. Explain your attitude concerning Christian motives. Don't be a slave of men. Be a slave of Christ. Four. Do I now persuade men or God? Or do I seek to please men? Yes, these Judaizers have showed up. And I guess I could compromise my message uh, to get along. I guess I could water down my gospel to uh, get you back on my good side. I, I could compromise and smooth out the rough waters. But Paul says, you know what? I used to live like that. I used to be a man pleaser. I had my eye on the Sanhedrin. I had my eye on the Mosaic Law. I had my eye on the rabbinic teachings. That's what drove me, motivated me. That was my all in all. And Paul says, bottom line, and what a great word for us to close on tonight, if I still pleased men, then I would not be a doulos, a bond servant of Jesus Christ. And Paul says, bottom line, you've got to decide who you want to please. And sometimes pleasing God means displeasing men. Sometimes pleasing God means angering men. But Paul says, bottom line, if it comes to pleasing God or pleasing men, men always lose. Guys and gals, that is indeed the way it ought to be. And so in a day of uh, tolerance, uh, multicultural pluralism, uh, where the idea of, uh, of an exclusive gospel is just deemed uh, out of uh, touch, uh, out of vogue and uh, unpalatable for so many in our culture, you and I just have to ask the, bo- the bottom line question is, who do we want to please? Would we rather please the culture or Christ? Would we rather please men or God? And I hope for all of us the decision will always be an easy one between God and men, men always lose. Thank you again for listening to this chapel message from Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary. If you are thinking about theological education on the undergraduate or graduate level, including doctoral studies, we hope that you consider us. If you also find these chapel messages encouraging and a blessing to your walk with Christ, we hope that you will consider financially supporting Southeastern. Our graduates are literally serving the kingdom across this globe, working to carry the gospel of Jesus Christ to a lost and dying world. Your gifts will help to train more, and they will serve as a worthwhile investment in God's kingdom. You can find more information about attending Southeastern or supporting us financially at www.sebts.edu. We covet your prayers and trust that God will bless every good work you do for His glory. Thank you for joining us in our chapel services.